0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to First Corinthians chapter thirteen. Wonderful chapter. We are continuing our discussion or our exposition of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. We are doing this in this fashion because it is the word of God, and we are here to proclaim the Word of God, to teach the Word of God. And we're so thankful for this book. Paul has taught us some tremendous truths. Now, if you recall, we concluded our last message, message number 32 at least, on First Corinthians at verse 31 of chapter 12. And this is how that passage reads, verse 31 of chapter 12, the New Living Translation puts it in this fashion, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. My paraphrase of that is, let me explain to you a guaranteed way you can solve all the problems you're experiencing at Corinth. That's quite a statement, isn't it? I could paraphrase that and say. Today, I'm going to explain to you the way we could solve all the problems at Calvary Bible Church. Would you like to hear that? All right, keep tuned in. Paul, if you recall, had just concluded describing some 19 or more spiritual manifestations that we call spiritual gifts in chapters 12 and 11. And he also described the amazing dynamic that occurs when these gifts are manifested within the body of Christ by members of the incredible body of Christ. There's a wonderful dynamic that occurs that can occur nowhere else other than amongst the people of God. Because the Spirit of God gives each member of the incredible body of Christ a spiritual ability to enhance the growth of that body. And then it is done in keeping with God's will. It's a wonderful experience to behold and to, exp- and to experience. But now in the case of the Corinthians, Paul has a major problem. These members of the incredible body of Christ are living as though they are not members of the incredible body of Christ. Even though he says at the beginning of of his book that they are enriched with all spiritual blessings. In other words, they have them in abundance. But yet, in spite of the abundance of the presence of spiritual gifts in this church, they're living as though they're not Christians. That's why he calls them carnal, fleshly. They're living as though they are still unsaved. In fact, he is saying that if I did not see the gifts being manifested in the church, I wouldn't even know that you were believers. Although they were using them improperly, they were still being manifested. And Paul is saying, hey, that's what causes me to believe that you're believers. Because otherwise you're acting as though you're not. And that tells us right away. we have got to be careful of the emphasis we put on spiritual gifts as a mark of spirituality. Because some of the most carnal, fleshly, people could be people who manifest spiritual gifts in a powerful way. That's a paradoxical thing, but that is true nonetheless. Having discussed then their unchrist like behavior and attitude toward one another, beginning way back in chapter 1 and all the way to the end of chapter 12, Paul now says in effect, after talking about all of the problems that have been caused in the church, Involving also the use of spiritual gifts. After dealing with all of these things, he says in chapter 12 verse 31, let me explain to you a guaranteed way you can solve all the problems you're experiencing at Corinth. And then he brings us to chapter 13, the love chapter. Isn't that beautiful? How many of you all have memorized 1 Corinthians 13? Only one? Two. That's amazing. That shows you the difference. You know, that was one of the main passages that young people used to study or memorize in in Sunday school. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Romans 8, and so on. The love chapter. Most of you know it, though, right? Now unbelievably, though, this is probably one of the most misapplied chapters in the entire Bible. Although it's probably one of the most loved and well-known, it is also probably one of the most misapplied. In fact, some Bible scholars actually believe it shouldn't be there because it seems so out of place. In this fighting church, in this fleshly church. Some scholars actually say this was some sort of a hymn that Paul say, Hey, you know, I talk about so many bad things, let me put something in here to make it sound good. This is true. Bible scholars actually say that this chapter shouldn't be in there because it's so out of place with everything else going on. They see it as a parenthesis. Many Christians take this chapter out of its immediate context and apply it to what? Marriage and Valentine's Day. If you want to see a time that this particular chapter is quoted, read some of the notes and the cards people send Valentine's Day. Don't talk about marriage. you could hardly have. A marriage ceremony without First Corinthians 13. True or false? Well, yeah. But you see, that was not the intent of First Corinthians 13. When we use it like that, we're using it with our own intent and not with the intent that the author intended it when he wrote it. Now, we do that all the time. And we still say we're obeying the word of God. Now, I'm going to explain something here that has to do with Bible study. Some of you might get upset, not because you're going to be mad at me or anything, but because, hey, I've been doing it for so long. Me too. Let me give you an illustration. Have you ever heard these words? I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. My God. Will you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. You know that verse? I mean, you know that passage? Where do you normally hear that? In a marriage ceremony. And who's saying it? <laughs> a woman. Hey. One spouse to another. That's what's normally done. Isn't that right? And we take these words, and we place it in a marriage ceremony, and we say, this is the word of God In our marriage ceremony. But now look at the words in their context. Naomi, a Jew, her daughter in laws, who are pagans, Moabites, are preparing to leave Naomi because their husbands, her sons, had died. Pick up the story, verse 14. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, Offer kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Now notice that, and her gods. Did you see that? Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Here's the part you put in the marriage. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Now, by the way, there are many... Spouses, who want to want that part in there, but your family can be my van, But anyway, leave that one out. Will you die? I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse. If anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her. She said no more to her. That's the historical context. That's. The intent of the author not to show what a bride says to a husband or vice versa, but what is said when a pagan converts to Judaism. In actuality the passage is designed to describe a non Jew's defection from our own religion, our own gods to that of another, and the exchange is between two women, a mother and a daughter-in-law. Now while snatching a few lines out of the original context and putting them into wedding ceremony may sound good, it is nonetheless a serious neglect of the rules of accurate and authentic biblical interpretation. Because you're putting your intent into the Word of God rather than the intent designed by the author who wrote it. You understand what I'm saying? Now I could give you many more examples of that, but you get mad at me. That was not the intention of the inspired author for that passage to be used in a marriage ceremony. That was not the intention. Now, am I saying it's wrong? I'm not going to go that far in saying it because we could say it applies and no thing, but that was not the intention. Okay? That's the same thing we do when we come to 1 Corinthians. And the only way we could understand what Paul is saying to the Corinthians about how to cure the problems in the church is if we keep that in its context. If we take it and put it into marriage, we wouldn't know what Paul is talking about. If we take it and talk about Valentine, we wouldn't know what is being said. You understand what I'm saying? As far as the intended author was concerned. Oh yeah, we will feel good ourselves about saying, Hey, doesn't that sound good saying it to my wife, my husband? Doesn't that sound good saying to my Valentine? It may, but you can't say it's the word of God in that case. Are you following me? Probably, but you don't like it. But it's true. Nonetheless, so we're going to try to keep 1 Corinthians in the context that it was intended to be kept. But first, let's read it together. It's on the screen. Please let's read it in unison. And after I count three, we'll go. One, two, three. If. account a wrong sufferer, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For well, we know in part, and we prophesy in part, for when the perfect comes, the Pasha will be done away with. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. three, that the greatest of these is God. Isn't that a wonderful passage? It really is. But now here is the jarring truth that we must recognize if we are going to take the word of God for what it is and what it intended to be. It must be applied to this beautiful passage if the book of 1 Corinthians could be understood. This chapter was written as the major cause due to its absence for all the problems the Corinthians were experiencing in their local church and among themselves as believers. In other words, this chapter is both a remedy for these problems as well as a condemnation of the attitude and actions of the self-centered, carnal, arrogant Corinthian believers. This chapter is a condemnation to them. Paul is describing and explaining the attitude they should show toward one another and by which they should exercise their gifts in the church. The way they should minister to one another. In effect then, 1 Corinthians 13, its primary purpose for being written is to serve as a prescription for correcting and avoiding carnality, immaturity, selfishness, and arrogance in the local church. That's the primary purpose for it. The primary purpose for it is not to write in a Balanced Science Not that you can't. I'm trying to emphasize that we must keep it in its context. In a remarkable way, Paul describes in this chapter in detail how the Corinthians, due mostly to their self-centered focus on spiritual gifts or spiritual manifestation and their boastful arrogance because of their rich possession of these gifts, how they demonstrate a lack of love amongst one another both to God and to one another, in spite of all that they were doing. Paul is going to say it amounts to nothing. And in fact, he's going to make a statement that's going to jar most of you. In fact, as I was studying it and getting the real input of the word, it jarred me as well. Paul is saying that this Virtue was lacking in every area they were complaining about or fighting over. It says, in every instance, love was lacking. And so in summary, looking at the whole passage, he shows that they were fighting over temporal things rather than eternal things. He shows that they were demonstrating spiritual childlikeness rather than spiritual authority, rather than spiritual maturity. And on top of that, they were actually making themselves to be absolutely insignificant to the growth of the church rather than being as significant as they boasted to be. So this chapter is a condemning chapter for these. Corinthians. Let's look at the verses. To validate this. Verses 1 and 3 first. Now. In these verses Paul shows the indispensability or essentiality of love. Versus the temporariness of spiritual gifts. The essentiality of love versus the temporariness of spiritual gifts. He's trying to make a point. He says in verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, most of you know that by heart, but what does that mean? Paul is still talking about spiritual gifts. You see that? That's why we cannot just take it out of his gut. He's still talking about spiritual gifts. This shows that this passage cannot be torn or ripped out of its context and still return its purpose for being written. If you take out the idea of spiritual gifts from this passage, you are misapplying the word of God. Now here in verse 1, he's referring to the gift of tongues or the gift of languages. One of the major problems in the Corinthian church and the one that they boasted of more than any other. And that's why he takes it on first. In chapter 1, verse 5, he said they were enriched in speech. That means that they were enriched in the gift of languages. They had plenty of people speaking in tongues. They had a lot of people speaking other languages. That's what he means, enriched in speech. Paul is addressing then this gift specifically. The gift of tongues or the gift of languages. Now we got to be careful with this verse. He's using what we call hyperbole. That's where a person uses extreme examples or emphasis to make a point. He goes to the extreme. It doesn't mean that the extreme is true. But if it were true, then the point he's making would come about. He does not mean that angels have a language that is different from men. Some teach that. But I'm going to show you that that cannot be true, because if that's true, we wouldn't be able to speak to angels when they go to glory. You know why? Because later down in the passage, he tells us the gift of tongues is going to cease. Now, if the gift of tongues cease before we go to glory, and the angels got a different language, that means we can't talk to them. It's amazing how when you just read Scripture... It clears it up for you. But we'll come to that in a moment. He does not mean that angels have a language that is different from man. But Paul is saying if they did, and he could speak all human languages as well as angelic language, but he did so without love, he would notice. Now notice what the text says. He he didn't say, I will become as though I am nothing or as though I am insignificant. What does the text say? I become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. I was going to have the fellows do that to me if I forgot to tell them. A noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Notice what the text says. He didn't say he's going to sound like them. He says he's going to become what they are. And what is noisy, clanging, and symbols? It's nothing meaningless, without worth. He's saying, if I speak in all of the languages, even if there's an angelic one, and I did it without love, I become nothing.
1: That's what he says.
0: Nothing. Now, what do these people in tongues wanted to do? They wanted to become something. Paul says, you could speak all the languages you want, but if you do it without love... You don't become something, you become nothing. That's a powerful statement. That's the word that jarred me. And you can see he didn't only use it once. You become nothing, he uses two and three times. You, you become nothing, 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 as far as the program of God is concerned, and the growth of the people is concerned. This is a strong indictment to the Corinthians who were using the gift of languages. They wanted to prove themselves to be something or somebody special, by, by, the, by the exercise of these languages but because they were doing it for selfish and prideful reasons rather than out of love they were actually making themselves to be nothing and no bodies in the church I don't misrun run by that why are you doing what you're doing in the church why am I doing what I'm doing what is the motivation to reason? Am I doing it just to be popular? Just to be noticed? Just to be recognized? You know what Paul says? If you're doing it for that reason, you're nothing. I'm sorry, that's what the text says. If you do it apart from love, you're nothing. Or oh, you may think you're somebody because you get all the plaques, you get all of these recognition. but Paul says, if you did all that, I don't care how long you've done it, I don't care where you've done it, I don't care how you've done it, but if you've done it without love, you're nothing. That's the word of God. Now, if that don't jar you, I don't know it will. I had to check all my own life, why in the world, am I doing, what am I doing? It leads to confession of sin, you know that. I don't want to be recognized by God as nothing, even though I do all kinds of things, saying I'm doing it for Him. Paul says you're doing it without love. You're nothing. By the way, as I mentioned before, if there were in fact an angelic tongue spoken by angels As I mentioned, we would not be able to understand them because later on in the passage, Paul tells us that the gift of tongues will cease before we go to glory. Now that means if the gift of languages cease before we go to glory, and the angels got a language, then we can't talk to them. So we know from that that he is not saying that there is such a language. Simply that if there were, and we'd be able to do without love, we're nothing. It's hyperbole. But he goes on to verse two. These verses are scary if you read them and study them rather than just fluff over them. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, notice to alls, hmm? this doesn't mean little bit, you know, it doesn't mean all. All mysteries, everything that God knows, all knowledge, all the knowledge God has, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love. Notice what he says. What does he say? I am nothing. I am nothing. Now, he personifies love. Love is, We can see that when we come to verse 4, love is this, love is that, and so on. But if you don't have love, when we exercise these gifts, when we minister for God in the church, we're nothing. Now Paul is referring to the gifts that deal with knowledge of God's will. Again, this is solid evidence that Paul is using hyperbole. Or extreme exaggeration to prove or emphasize his point, rather than it being actual fact. Because you notice now, if somebody did in fact have all knowledge, if they understood all mysteries, and if they have all faith, they would be God. That's why we know this is hyperbole, and Paul is just doing this to make it fact. Some did have the gift of prophecy. Some did have the gift of knowledge. Some did have the gift of wisdom, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge. But that did not give them absolute knowledge of divine things. But Paul is saying now, even if it did, even if that gift of prophecy allowed you to know everything that God knows in the future, even that gift of wisdom and that gift of knowledge cause you to understand everything that God understands it, and you shared that without love to the people of God, you're nothing. I am nothing, he says. He says the same thing about the gift of faith. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. All faith, absolute faith, is useless without it being demonstrated in love. No matter who possesses the gift to its ultimate, if it's manifested amongst the people of God without love, he did not say the gift is nothing. He said you nothing. I am nothing. He is nothing. Now, if that don't scare you, I don't know what can. Because he's talking about the people of God relating to one another in the church. He's talking about how we serve one another. How we relate one another. That's what he's talking about. And if he says, if we don't do it with love, we're nothing. He's emphasizing, I say, the absolute essentiality and indispensability of love when we minister in the church. Now, this is really something. Without love being our motivation, no matter what we do, how much we do it, how long we do it, If love is not the reason for our doing it, we are nothing. That's what the text says. Now you could like it or not like it, but that's what the text says. Look at verse 3. He isn't finished yet. He gives an even greater extreme example. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, what is the result? It profits me nothing. See that word profits me nothing? That's the word Solomon uses when he says all is vanity. Vanity is to have something without profit, no value to it. Well, not value, no profit to it. Paul says if you have the gift of giving, because that's what he's talking about now, if you have the gift of giving that enables you to give everything you possess to feed the poor, all the refugees in Haiti, all the refugees in Japan, Africa, the Bahamas, or wherever, if you do it for selfish reasons and not out of love, just to get your picture in the paper, just to get your news, get in the news media, Paul says, you're nothing. All of that has no profit. But he not there. He says even if you choose to be a martyr for a cause, for a reason, and you don't do it out of love, it profits you nothing. It, uh, now, now, now please get that. It's possible, Paul says, for you to offer your life for a cause or someone, and it don't mean nothing if you don't do it because of love. Paul is saying, no matter what gifts or abilities we have, no matter how we may look like we're so dedicated, no matter how many say, i got to come out late to do this, come out late to do this, I do this, I do that, I do what, say, I don't care about none of that. Unless you're doing it with love. Because if you're not, it's a waste of time. And as far as God is concerned, you're nothing to the church. That's what's going to in 13. Did you ever see that day before like that? That's because of how lightly we handle the Word of God. We want the Word of God to say what we want it to say, rather than take it for what it says. Let me say, tell you something now. If you want that kind of preaching, please don't come back to Calvary Bible Church. So now, having dealt with the indispensability or essentiality of love versus the temporariness of spiritual gifts. See, Paul says all of those things are can do away with. But not love. We can talk about that later on. But now he moves on to verses 4 through 7 to describe the excellencies or the virtues of love. And boy, now this is a fantastic passage, but it's also a scary one and a condemning one when you look at it in its context. Now, when you take it out of context, it's beautiful. You will go and you will cry over these words. Oh boy, that's so loving. That's so nice. But when you read them with the intent that God had for you to read it with, you're going to fall down before him and ask for forgiveness. Let's look down at the word of God. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Now, remember now, if you have any of these things in God's sight, then you work in your nothing. See the point? Patient, kind, jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Beautiful passage, isn't it? But let's look at it. What they really mean now. In these four short verses, Paul sequentially, one after the other, deals and details all of the marks of immaturity and lack of and lack of love the Corinthians displayed. As he dealt with in chapters 1 through 12. In other words. And this is what we miss out. Paul in these four verses. 4 through 7. Goes back over everything he has said about the Corinthians. And shows them. That what they were doing. Was being done. Out of a lack of love. Everything he says here. Applies to something they did of the time you miss that? We don't go look at that. We take it out of its context altogether. Call, and so Paul goes back and forth saying what love is, or what love does, what love is not, what love does not do. He personifies love to emphasize this teaching about the proper use of ministering in the church and how believers are to act toward one another as well as the attitude we are to demonstrate toward another all the time. Paul is talking about how we as believers are to relate to one another in church as well as every other social area. And he says if we're not doing these things, as far as the church is concerned, we're nothing. He shows in sequential fashion how they have missed the mark when it comes to love. That he, as we will conclude in this chapter, is the greatest of all virtues. A virtue which will outlast all spiritual gifts. And you know what the crowning mark of spiritual maturity is he will end with? Love. Notice what he says. Verse 4. Love is patient. This is what Paul said about them in chapter 3, verse 3. For you are still fleshly. For since there is, notice now, jealousy. Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not what? Fleshly. Are you not walking like mere men, unsaved people? For when one says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men, acting as unsaved? Notice he says, jealousy. Put it into context now. Love is not jealous. Paul puts it in the context of when we fight over preachers. They will fight Noah, Paul, Peter, Apollos, and so on. Paul says, now when you all get out there, and you all say, well, I ain't coming tonight because Paul ain't preaching, Peter preaching. That's a mark of jealousy. You understand what I'm saying? See, put it in the context. You are still fleshly, for since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like unsaved men? Give me an illustration, Paul. Then you say, I want Paul to preach, and another say, I want Apollos." That's jealousy. That's strife. That's a lack of love. You are nothing when it comes to the church. You see how powerful this chapter is? If you read it in context. He says, "Love does not brag and is not arrogant." Now Paul spoke about this in chapter three and four. He talked about it when he says that no one boasts in man, because he they were boasting in some of the men. Paul is greater than Paul is. A Paul is greater. That's wrong. That's a lack of love. Some have become arrogant. Paul says. Now he says, "Love does not brag and is not arrogant." They were puffed up with pride when they were talking about the different preachers. Paul says, love will remove all of that pride. And will replace it with a desire to promote every preacher, not just one. You see you see how personal this chapter is? Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. You remember when he talked about the Lord's table in chapter 11? This is how he concluded. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. See that? That's unloving. That's why some were being killed by God. That's why some were sick, because of their unloving spirit. This is a powerful passage if you see what God is saying to us. Love is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, this is something. You see, each one of these, we could take a week to talk about and illustrate Paul dealt with this in chapter 6 regarding taking one another to court. Why do you do it, Paul's answer? Because you don't love. Notice how he concludes. Actually then, taking people to court, it is already a defeat for you. In other words, you don't have to wait to see what the judge says to see who wins. Just to take the action that you already lost. It is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Here it is now. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do that you do that even to your brethren? He says, You don't only do it to unsaved people. You do it to those who say you're members of the body of Christ that you're gonna spend eternity with. You take them to court to get some money back right now. He said, What is the root cause of that? Lack of love. That's what it says. Verse six. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Paul dealt with this in chapters 5 and 6 when he was talking about the immoral person. This is what he says in chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, have not mourned instead. So the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. These people were actually proud of the fact that they had someone in their assembly that was living in an incestuous relationship. What were they saying? Boy, we kind of, aren't we loving? Look at that. Look at what, you know. Look at what he's doing. But we still let him come to church. We still let him break bread. We still let him lead worship. We still let him sing in the choir. Aren't we wonderful Christians? Paul is saying, no. You're Christians who don't show love. Because if you show love, you will discipline the unrepentant person. Love is all things. Now most commentators agree with the word. There here should really be more protect. It's like an umbrella. You put yourself over the other person and you protect the others from harm. Paul talked about this in chapter 8 when he talked about causing a st- being a stumbling block to a weaker brother. He says take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He says no, no, no. What love does, love puts themselves over and protects and they take the blows. Beautiful passages here. Love believes, or by the way, I'm only touching this. if we get into this the way we should, all of us will be crawling under the pews. Because this speaks to us on our everyday living and ministering. Love believes all things. That doesn't mean that you're open to all kinds of foolishness and being taken advantage of. No, no. It means that you're trusting. You give the person the benefit of the doubt. You try to put the best possible side on actions and events that occur. He deals with that when he talks about himself in chapter 9. Because you know a lot of the people were saying that Paul was not a true apostle. They didn't trust Paul. And so Paul says in chapter 9 verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work with the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostle. Paul is saying that we trust one another. We don't doubt and fight and squabble. and No, we trust one another. Love does that. That's how love covers. Remember, elsewhere he says, love what? Covers a multitude of sins. You don't take out everything that somebody does against you. Some of them you just write off. Let God take care of me. Who, me? Not me. He can get what comes come into him. He ain't going to treat me like that. No, sir. Not me. I work to. Oh No, no. That's not love. That's the old man. That's the old flesh. That's what you work, not what you are. Love hopes all things. It's in the sense that it earnestly desires that all things work out for the best. It's, in other words... Love is eternally optimistic. Now the apostle will address this matter of unbelief and doubts when it comes to the resurrection in chapter 15, because believe it or not, they were doubting the resurrection, some of them. Doubting essential doctrines, and Paul's going to deal with that. Love hopes all things. Then he says love endures all things. It, actually the word is persevere. It's, it's, it's a stretching out of enduring. No matter what happens, no matter how you might be mistreated because you're acting loving towards other people, you're going to hang in there. Now, Paul, I believe, is actually looking ahead to the next section when he deals with the next verses, when he deals with the permanence and eternality of love as compared to the temporariness of spiritual gifts. He's going to say, love lasts Forever. Whereas spiritual gifts will not. Love endures, outlasts everything, it just goes on on and on. It's like a battery, you know, it just goes on ticking, it just goes on and on, that's love. Dr. Gene Getz, one of my mentors, makes an insightful comment here, and I quote him now because I think it is so pertinent. He says, within the space of four verses, Paul demonstrates in summary fashion, that the Corinthians have little, if any, love at all. If they are listening at all, they cannot deny this indictment. And I hope that is true of us as well. Notice now, the Corinthians, they are impatient. Now as you go through this listening, ask yourself as a Christian, as a member of the incredible body of Christ, whether this is true of you or not. Impatient. Yes or no? proud yes or no rude I like that one well, I don't mean I like that one but you ever hear people says, you know when they talk rough and hard you say that's just me that's who I am you ever heard that and they like excuse it no that's rude that's rudeness that's all it is rude you see God is meant Salvation meant to change us, not to keep us as we were, to say that's what I am. I was born that way, that's me. <laughs> if you're a Christian, you've got to be born again, so that won't be you. Impatient, yes or no, proud, unkind, yes or no, rude, yes or no. Envious of others. Self seeking trying to be up front. You know, you never notice when kids run up here on the platform. What's the first thing most of them do? Run for the mic. You should know that. (laughs) What is being built into their minds? No, I'm serious. They want to get the spotlight. Self-seeking, boastful, easily angered, encouraging immorality, in other words, living with your friend. Being nice to them wouldn't confront them, even though you know they are living in a sinful state, in a sinful lifestyle. You know they're wrong, but because they're a friend and they're doing favors for you and they're doing all that, you are encouraging them. Rejecting the truth. That's when it comes to the Word of God. Many, not many, some of you can walk on your boy, that, that's what he thinks in the Bible. I can listen to somebody else who think different. Why? You won't reject the truth. You can't handle it. Stumbling blocks to other Christians. Denying the resurrection. That's what's true for Corinthians. And Paul is saying the remedy for all of those things is what? No. Now, when Paul goes on to verse 8 through 13, Paul deals with the permanency of etern- and eternality of love as compared with the temporariness of spiritual gifts. He's doing so to show that the way of love is a more excellent way by which to exercise spiritual gifts and to minister within the context of the church. This is an extremely important passage, verses 8 through 13, especially as it relates to the gift of tongues and so on. We'll look at this next time, Lord willing. But, what do you think, or who do you think is Paul's source for emphasizing the security and excellency of life and the believer's life? Who do you think is the source? It's Jesus Christ. Notice his command. This is not a suggestion. This is not an option. This is a command. Let's read it together, please. Remember now, who saved you? Jesus Christ. Who is your Lord? Who is your Master? Now does a servant say to his Master, No, Lord. Jesus, our Master, is speaking. Let's read it out together, please. A new command I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's our master. Now to put it in the context. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you show love when you minister in this church and when you relate to one another. As someone has said some time ago, see love, think and act on these things. Thank you.